Welcome to the Nature MI podcast. Here, we uncover nature-inspired solutions to the world's most urgent problems, like climate change and global pandemics. We talk with thought leaders and innovators who are taking their cues from nature, and we explore ways to unravel nature's deepest secrets. Now here's your host, a man who finds inspiration in nature on a daily basis, Dr. Victor Shamas. Greetings. Today's episode of Nature Am I is a very special one that features an interview with Dr. Elizabeth Saturis, renowned evolutionary biologist, futurist, and sustainability expert. Dr. Saturis is the author of four books, including Earth Dance, Living Systems and Evolution, She is also professor in residence at Chaminade University in Hawaii. What draws me to her work is its consistent message of hope. That hope is grounded in legitimate hard science. Dr. Saturis maintains that the maturation of species and ecosystems often happens through an evolutionary shift from competition to cooperation. She feels that such a shift is taking place among human beings today. I spoke with her on April 23, 2020, one day after the 50th anniversary of the first Earth Day celebration. Because of the COVID-19 pandemic, many of the events that were scheduled for Earth Day had been canceled. One event that wasn't was the release of Michael Moore's new movie, Planet of the Humans. This film, produced by Moore and directed by Jeff Gibbs, offers a very dark and dire view of the environmental movement and humanity's future. It points out widespread corruption among noted environmental leaders. But perhaps even more disheartening, it provides a very pessimistic view of renewable energy as it now stands. It turns out that wind and solar power may not be as renewable or sustainable as we think, at least not yet. Coming into my interview with Dr. Saturis, I was feeling a bit hopeless, having just seen that film. In my conversation with her, not only did my mood shift, but I gained a very different perspective on the COVID-19 pandemic and how it fits into her take on evolution. Here now, without further delay, is my interview with Dr. Elizabeth Satoris. Enjoy. Dr. Elizabeth Satoris, welcome to the Nature MI podcast. So happy to have you here. Thank you so much, Victor. It's a delight to be with you from here in Honolulu. (laughs) And I would like to start today by reading something that you wrote. The really exciting thing about being alive today is that we're all here for a great transformation. It's clear that we're unsustainable. We have to change things and we're figuring out how. And in the sense, the old system is getting more entrenched, more violent, more powerful. It's trying to keep itself alive while we know that we need a new system. So my question to you is, I'd like to get a progress report on where you think we are in terms of uh, this transformation uh, and figuring things out and the entrenchment of the power structure. Well, for those who don't know my work, basically I'm a post-Darwinian evolution biologist and futurist uh, in the sense that I started all over looking at evolution when science itself became a suit too tight for me. I felt like I was a 
uh, an insect in metamorphosis or something, I had to shake off the boundaries that were imposed on my thinking uh, by being a what I have come to call Western scientist. And I have since discovered the sciences of other cultures. But basically, uh, you know, the ancient Greeks, I have some Greek heritage, uh, the ancient Greeks called science, natural science, philosophias, meaning lover of wisdom. And the purpose of science was to study nature in order to find guidance in human affairs. That was exactly, I discovered that only after I had really taken that path. I wanted to know what can we learn from nature that can guide our own human path in our more conscious evolution, since we're a species that can actually consciously evolve ourselves. So uh, what I found, the most important things I found in nature were one, the concept of holarchy, and uh, that's just the embeddedness of things in nature, that cells within organs, within organ systems, within bodies, within families, within communities, ecosystems, you know, ending up with nations, planet, and then on up to the whole universe. That concept is important because of the ancient edict, as above, so below. Many indigenous cultures just shifted levels very easily between the levels that they might call that of the gods and that of the humans, showing how the interactions happen and how the patterns repeat. The biggest pattern that I found in evolution was what I call a maturation cycle in which some unity diversifies, like the early Earth's homogenous crust packaging itself into little bacteria or babies born from mothers. It's just all over, this diversification out of unity, diversity. And so when you have diversity, when you have lots of bacteria all over the planet, they don't all have the same perspective and they have differences in, and they end up in, in struggles and competition with each other and stuff. So eventually those differences can get resolved into cooperative schemes that can lead to a whole new level of cooperation, a whole new being. So we went from bacteria to multi-celled creatures made as communities of bacteria to ourselves as multi-celled creatures, still harboring those bacteria in ourselves and also on and around us. <laughs> on and in us, in our guts, we're finally learning that the vast majority of them are our friends. And so anyway, this cycle of maturation from basically from Darwinian competition to mature cooperation, as was taught in the Soviet Union, where uh, evolution biology was taught through Kropotkin's work, mutual aid. And now all the Western evolution biologists are also coming to conclusion that cooperation is far more important, that the competitive stage leads to a lot of creativity, but must necessarily resolve in cooperation, just as dissonance in a musical sense always resolves into harmonies. So when you see that big picture that way, you see that we as humans right now are right in that transition maturation phase where we move out of hostilities into harmonies, out of the cooperation into the co competition into the cooperation. And so we see that those systems set up in the less mature phase namely systems like the capitalist economy, uh, which can be very exploitative and is designed to funnel wealth to the top, 
these systems will try to hold on to themselves as long as they can. Right? But eventually, you know, the caterpillar uh, turns into a butterfly. We get the transition happening. So it's our evolutionary destiny. And right now, we're just right in the middle of the throes of that kind of transformation with light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> the pr primeval bacteria that shifted into nucleated cells, uh, that took millions of years in that maturation process. Mm -hmm. And we don't have that. But do you think that, that there is something about humanity where we can make an evolutionary leap to a more cooperative system faster? Because given that the existential clock is ticking on us. If this maturation takes thousands of years or hundreds of thousands of years, we're in trouble. So, <laughs> so what, what do you have to say about that? Absolutely. No, the good news is that these things can happen very quickly. And in fact, our usual concept of evolution is happening very, very gradually and slowly. Uh, doesn't hold up. Even in that ancient bacterial world, there was a sudden recognition of the advantages of cooperation after trying it out in many different ways, and then boom, everybody did it. <laughs> so we have uh, what we think of as hundredth monkey effects or things like that. So that evolution has proceeded in leaps. But there's also a phenomenon of time speeding up, which is definitely happening. There are so many graphs of things that have happened over the past thousands of years and then hundreds of years and so on, where we see things speeding up rapidly. And we also, the good news is that a lot of humanity already went through this phase. We call them indigenous cultures and we have almost wiped them out, but they're still there and we can still see uh, how they shifted into the mature phases of cooperation, but it's never been done at a global scale. It's never been done in an industrial world. You see, it's, look how fast we went from, from being individual nation states to being a completely globalized economy. It happened within a, a couple of decades that we globalized our economy since the 1970s when, when neoliberalism came in, the Reagan-Thatcher, the whole idea of let's spread this around the world. It's a post-World War II phenomenon where a lot of cultures already were speaking English through the spread of the GIs everywhere after that war. And we were prepared for working with each other in very solidly interlinked, intertwined global ways. So that globalization happened, as I said, within 20, 30 years, we were globalized, mm -hmm. right? And yes. so, so you can see how very fast humans can do things. And now we see even more rapid transitions. I, I thought I'd have to wait until the sea level wiped out, you know, the, the largest cities in the world on seacoasts uh, before we would really wake up to realizing we have to change the way we live on the planet, that our competitive economy must shift into a cooperative one. And now, boop, one little virus and <laughs> overnight, the entire world is doing things differently. Overnight, we're all at home thinking about these things, going out only in our masks, only at a distance from each other, in complete cooperation. And the new heroes are not the guys who got rich, but the caregivers who are taking care of each other. The caring and sharing economy is very different from the exploitative financial system we're living in, right? So, right. oh, we are on speed up and we have tremendous agency 
Now, we're recognizing that we are the agents of our own destiny. We're not, we don't have to sit around waiting for some future to happen to us. We know now that we create it. In keeping with that, I, I just wrote a blog uh, about calling this a global reboot. You know, we've, mm-hmm. we've wondered, many of us who want to make a shift to a more peaceful, balanced, sustainable uh, world, how we were ever going to stop the insanity. But nature took care of that for us, right? And now, in a way, when you talk about agency, one of the powers we have is we could say, let's keep things still until when the system boots up again, it boots up in the right way, in a way where everybody has food to eat, where we figure out ways to recycle everything, where we find sustainable forms of energy, et cetera. I mean, we could leverage ourselves that way. I mean, do you you see that, do you see this critical COVID-19 outbreak that we're in as the opportunity? You think this is the key moment where this shift could occur? Absolutely. There's no doubt about it that we are seeing all over the world. We're amazed at what it looks like when there are blue skies and the animals can come out without human interference and walk around and coming into our cities sometimes maybe inappropriately. But fair enough that they should be exploring what they can. So, yeah, what you see, we see it. We find out that all those things that they told us you can't do that. You can't stop air travel. You can't do this. Yeah, right. <laughs> they volunteer to stop <laughs> to stop the machine, uh, which is amazing. And I think we should laugh happily, joyfully about the fact that they have have pretty much volunteered to stop their own machine <laughs> and because yeah, they can't. Now, the question is, of course, how Mm -hmm. to hold on to those good things that are happening, as you say, of coming out and not doing the wrong things again. And I've often said to young audiences, you know, building a better future is not difficult at all. Look at all the things your elders have done that you disapprove of and don't do them anymore. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) if you think war is a bad idea, come out of this saying, we absolutely refuse to participate in warfare anymore. We know now that fighting each other is no way to solve our differences. Only cooperation works. You've just taught us that, you can say. (laughs) You've just taught us to be very cooperative and we see how well it works when we all go indoors and stop shopping and flying and stop, you know, so many, I wonder how many people now are actually drinking the water out of their faucets mm. rather than dragging all those plastic bottles home. Mm. Uh, mm. We here in Honolulu have the cleanest water in the world mm. and we import huge numbers of plastic bottles for tourists. Mm. Well, we don't have to do that now because the tourists don't come anymore. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but you know that the powers that be are going to do everything in that they can to reinstate things mm-hmm. as they were to reimpose the status quo yes. and in in terms of making this evolutionary shift one of the things i i i love in your writings is where you said you know there's no point in attacking the old system because it's basically going to come down on its own and it and mm-hmm. it certainly looks like like that that is exactly what's happening 
yes. uh, now. And yet here we are not sure that how hard the old system is going to fight us. Are we going to see martial law? Are we going to have to fight for, for the right to live the way, you know, in a more cooperative way in our world? You know, I wonder about that first bacterium, Elizabeth. I wonder a lot when I hear your, your talk about that evolutionary leap that a species makes. And how, did, how in the world that first bacterium, those first two bacteria maybe that came together to form a nucleated cell, how in the world did that happen? And I wonder a lot because yeah. when you think well, about shifts like that, you have to think about how, how that's going to occur. It actually, actually, it happened through invasions. When, when the bacteria mm. were still in the competitive phase, there were basically three kinds. There were fermenters, I call them the bubblers, and there were photosynthesizers, which I call the blue-greens, uh, mm. making oxygen, right? And there were the respiratory ones that I call the breathers. So the bubblers, the blue-greens, and the breathers. The bubblers were the biggest, fattest, sluggishest ones. And the breathers were the high-tech ones with actual electrical motors that could drill into bubbler cells. And like the way we see viruses infecting cells, we talk a lot about that now, that's exactly what they did. They went into the larger cell and reproduced inside. And then at some point, negotiations started to happen among those groups of bacteria. Many of these died as though of an infection, right? And other ones survived when things were done a little differently. And they discovered that if you take all these breathers and tack them onto the outside of your big bubbler with all their electric motors having tails attached, you could move this whole thing into an area where the blue-greens could make food for the whole colony because there was enough sunlight, right? So suddenly you found that you could interweave the technologies that had been discovered in the hostilities youthful phase into cooperative. And the same thing happens when, look at how many of our technologies were invented during warfare. Uh, some of them should have stayed there, like 5G, which was a crowd control, became a crowd control weapon in electromagnetic frequencies. But a lot of things ended up giving us appliances, electrical stuff in our houses that has made life much more comfortable. So our, our strength is in numbers. We now are automatically forced into huge numbers of people doing the same thing, thinking the same things about taking care of ourselves and each other seeing the caregivers as the heroes, all this. If that massive number of people, when we are let outside again, refuses to cooperate in the ways that Gandhi and King and, and these great peacemakers taught us, do not go along with the reinstatement of the new things, refuse to buy them. Uh, you know, long ago, uh, who was it? Paul Hawken, who's, who said, no appliance or car should ever be sold outright. They should only be leased with the companies who make them forced to take them back when they're no longer working. Okay. And recycle or repurpose the, them. Exactly what would happen if you just made that law that they have to take them back and then you put limits on landfills, <laughs> they would right. very quickly make everything they're selling recyclable. You see, but you, but you have to force that to happen by refusing to, to uh, support the companies that don't make things recyclable. 
who was it? The, the president of CEO of Xerox was taken to a landfill and shown the Xerox machines and went back and redesigned Xerox machines so that they could be disassembled and recycled. These things can be done. We absolutely know we can recycle everything we create just as nature does. <laughs> it recycles everything too. So if we can't recycle it, we shouldn't be allowed to make it. And so Amen. we need to recognize our agency and our strength in numbers, which multiplies that agency so hugely. <laughs> and I've heard you say that it wouldn't cost that much to feed everybody in the world. And I just wonder well, why you say that. Uh, what is the backing of that statement? Well, the fact you is know? that we already produce more food than, uh, than everybody would need to, to have a healthy diet. But we lock it up, we destroy it. Now we're plowing it under. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, you know, the downside of, of this shutdown is things like farmers uh, uh, having to plow their, their crops under because harvesting them only to let them rot and they're not allowed often to give them away. Uh, here in Hawaii, at least the farmers can, can give the food crops to the food banks so that the poorest people are getting the healthiest food, the locally grown food. <laughs> um, That's great. But, and, and we see these food banks are being inundated now, where in San Antonio they had 10,000 cars waiting to get fed, and yet food is being, like milk is being dumped, yes. fields are being plowed. Yes. Uh, it, it just says that, this is I mean, a, that just makes the imbalances in our economic system more apparent. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, you know, now we see it. Now we see it clearly. And I've, uh, I wrote a little op-ed for Hawaii, which is on the Ethical Markets website, because Hazel Henderson, who runs that website, thought it should uh, be spread more widely, uh, saying that our state could issue a script exactly like during the Great Depression, when they had the food lines and all that, uh, local states and, and smaller local economies across the U.S. all invented their own currencies. And these were called scripts, S-C-R-I-P-S. And you can look up depression scripts online to see how, that they worked. And if the, if the state government here would issue, let's say, call them alohas, then they're perfectly legal. You just can't call them dollars, but anyone can invent an alternative currency. So, so if, they, if the state would issue a currency and say you can pay your state taxes in it and we're going to give this currency to anybody who wants a job growing food on government land, uh, starting a new business that's useful that we need here right now to keep ourselves going, um, so uh, growing bamboo, making clothes from hemp, recycling cardboard boxes into paper that we need for other purposes, whatever. All of those uh, small local businesses could be supported immediately and the state could dictate that all food suppliers and all uh, landlords, for instance, had to accept this currency. You could overnight boost the entire economy and it would cost them nothing because you can do all the currency digitally now, just the way the feds do it. So if they can invent trillions of dollars out of thin air, there's no more gold backing or any other kind of backing. Uh, so can a local uh, economy also invent a currency out of thin air. And the thing you have to do is get people to believe in it. That's why you say you can pay your taxes in it and that makes it credible overnight. Uh, so these are possible things uh, that we can be doing when we come out to boost our local economies. I'm a great advocate of Bali Business Alliance for Local Living Economies. 
B-A-L-L-E, uh, Judy Wicks, founder. We used to work together on living economies at Social Venture Network. Look at the, the Global Echo Village Network, all the people that are out there learning how to sustain themselves uh, as villages. Uh, there are so many examples all over the world uh, of people who took matters into their own hands and built new economies. One of my favorites is the Mondragon cooperatives in Spain, M-O-N Dragon. A Catholic priest about 40 years ago went into all the bars where young people lived and said, what if we built an economy that was based on loving human relationships, not capitalists, not communists, just built on loving human relationships. What would, how would you do it? What would you put into it? We could be talking about these things while we're in lockdown, right? Yes. Say, how, what is it that we want to build as a working relationship that, in which we care and share for each other and actually fill out, figure out the details? They figured out, for instance, how much more, how much of a wealth gap should there be in salaries between the lowest paid worker and the very highest paid worker in the economy? And they decided on something like six to eight times. So that if the janitor gets $50,000 a year, uh, then the boss would, would at most get, what's six times 50? 300,000. Okay. Not 25 or 50 million, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and yeah. so they're doing that. And, and it's an industrial cooperative. They make large appliances and buses and build bridges and have supermarket chains. And they survived the 2008 collapse of the economy, uh, not as bad as the current one, but you see, and, and then in India, there's uh, the Sarvadiya movement based on two simple principles. Everybody meditates as little children on inner peace and generosity, period. Mm -hmm. Give what you have to give in a peaceful manner. And so those are more rural. And there are thousands of little villages in the country of Sri Lanka all practicing bootstrapping their economies in this way. So there's research you can do online. You can find all these cooperative ideas and uh, talk about them and make the plan for what we're going to do. Don't wait until the day you're released. Decide when we're released. Here's what we're, we will cooperate with. And here's what we will sit in the streets with our arms linked about. Because now we have huge numbers. And do you have any suggestions for how do you mobilize a population, you know, of billions of people? Because ultimately... They're all locked um, up right now. <laughs> <laughs> they, have, they still have an internet. That's how you mobilize. How, <laughs> well, how, does, how does somebody get 20,000 people to sing the same song on a big wall? <laughs> from their own homes and be able to get the music right and harmonize with each other. How can you do that? It's impossible. I don't know. It's absolutely possible, right? Yes. It's done. But it's been yeah. done. And, and we're copying it all over the place in singing to each other in, in smaller versions of yeah. it. So how about this question? At this point, uh, climate change, the, this pandemic, are evidence that this ecosystem is global, that we can't just talk about it as a local phenomenon. And so where do you find the balance? Because I've been accused at times of thinking very globally about these issues. And so I would like to know, and I think you're a global thinker too, but obviously you have a local perspective. 
How do you find that balance? Where do you think that balance is? Between... It, lies, it lies in holarchy, as I started out saying, mm. that these yes. are all embedded systems of different scales and that they all need to follow the same basic principles. Yeah. The same, for instance, diversity always has to be there. Nature never does monoculture. Put an immediate end to monocultured food. Replace it yeah. with, diver with food forests and... and Permaculture. Like permaculture. <laughs> right. Oh, we all we know we you know we know what to do. It's <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> you are so right about that. Uh, as far as balance goes, there's another thing I would like to urge everyone: get over your fear of this virus. Cooperate mm -hmm. in in doing what you're told, hoping that that is of great use in containing a real epidemic. But also know that. You, your body, the current estimate for the number of nucleated cells in your body is about 60 trillion. You have 10 times that many bacteria on your skin and in your guts. When we sanitize everything with antibiotics and, and antibiotic wipes, we are in danger of selecting for the hardiest ones, exactly the ones we don't want to survive. So soap and water, I'm so glad that that's really being widely promoted, is more important than, than the wipes. I don't know, maybe in a hospital, but why, why are hospitals, which are the most wiped down places in the world, the worst sources of infection also, is, is a good question. And I think it's because the hardiest bacteria survive all this. Uh, so you don't recommend uh, alcohol, like uh, isopropyl or uh, ethyl alcohol, better, or how do you feel? It's better than the than the chemical expensive ones. <laughs> it's much cheaper, but... Yes. Uh, I don't. I do not. I, I am friends with my bacteria. There is no such thing as a multi-celled creature without its contingent of bacteria. Now, yes. I haven't even mentioned viruses yet, but I want to. Yes. Every one of your nucleated cells is spitting out bits of RNA and DNA in little vesicles or strings all day long. It's been likened to dandruff if you have a bad case of it. Every cell is spitting all these viral-like things that are very difficult to tell apart from any particular virus. They look like viruses themselves, right? And they, are, they, they seem to have two functions. One is to get rid of debris, to flush it away, and then the body will take care of it in its ways of recycling. And the other is to communicate with other cells, exchanging information. DNA, RNA, those are information systems. And long ago, someone, somewhere I read that a virus is like a package to be mailed or to be held till better circumstances and then mailed. And it has an address on the outside. If the wrong party opens it, it will cause trouble. If it goes to the place it's supposed to be, it will not cause trouble. We have now recognized that well over 99% of all bacteria are beneficial. We are also going to discover that well over 99% of all viruses are also beneficial. So get more holistic. Don't think about all viruses are our enemies, all bacteria are our enemies. Inventing things called antibiotic means anti-life. And yes. I, I'm trying to talk my doctor friends now into not using the term antiviral anymore. 
let's go after something specific, if that's appropriate, but not blanketly assume nature doesn't know what it's doing. That is not debris coming off the cell. That is a very highly technical, complex communication system without which we would not be alive. And we don't know diddly about it yet. So it is possible for various things to interfere with the function of that whole system. For example, altitude sickness, which it turns out now functions very much like the COVID illness, is a matter of not having access to enough oxygen. If you unbalance the system in your cells that I'm talking about, these things that are spit out by the cells are called exosomes, and they come in different forms, many of which are indistinguishable from bacteria. If you make war on that whole exosome system, oxygen uptake becomes a problem. My only complaint about this whole thing, I, I think the lockdown is really important, but I think we also need to look much more holistically, for instance, at the history of our electromagnetic frequency use, because it too causes the same kinds of symptoms. So we have altitude sickness, you don't get enough oxygen. EMFs, like between 2G and 4G, when there were studies, but they're mostly suppressed, but you can find them online. Look at, at the Children's Defense Fund website. It has uh, their lead attorney, Daphna Takover, has long lists of, of her lectures about the dangers of 5G. I believe 5G is going to prove far more dangerous to our health than even this COVID virus. And we should think holistically. A good scientist looks at all these possibilities, not just one germ, one medicine, right? Right. Uh, every test we're using out there to test for the illness is testing for something rather different. There are different RNA tests and DNA tests and serum tests. And, and then uh, now the CDC says any death that's even suspected of having been COVID can be called a COVID death, which really blows up the statistics. So we have to, to be sensible, to be scientific, not to disregard any other information. It's the same with the whole question of vaccines, for instance. We're supposed to blanketly not object to anything about <laughs> vaccines, even though right. we have so much evidence that the stuff they, the adjuvants, the stuff they add to the actual, you know, cow attenuated. <laughs> attenuated virus in it, yeah. are deadly it, with aluminum and, and uh, uh, all these other adjuvants, lead, and I don't know what all they're putting in them now. I forget the list. But are we allowed, for instance, when we vaccinate our children to ask for the contents, the total list of things that are in a vaccination we're going, that we are to put in our children? Is it fair to ask yes. what's in it? I read the labels on the food I buy in the supermarket. I'm so glad that they have to say on the label what's in it. Why can't we have the same kind of label on vaccines, on medicines, on, you know, if we take our cues from nature, from other organisms in nature, uh, for example, mushrooms produce compounds that are naturally occurring that are deterrents for viruses and bacteria. Uh, so how would you suggest uh, a nature-based approach to managing an outbreak like this? Would you consider, because we know that a lot of lifestyle choices that people make uh, actually put them more at risk, 
right? You know, what they eat and whether or not they exercise and all of those issues that lead to obesity and uh, diabetes and heart disease. Yeah. Thank you for asking the question. Thank you so yeah. much. I would not have <laughs> liked to leave that out because this is a wonderful opportunity for people to look at everything that they're ingesting and doing and how to exercise at home and how to put the best food you available to you into your gut because you are feeding the very gut bacteria that are running your immune system. Mm -hmm. And your only real defense against COVID is your immune system. People who have really strong immune systems get off very lightly when they contract this disease. People who don't, who have very highly compromised immune systems are likely to get it very severely. That's very clear now. I do not like the food wars going on between the different faction diets uh, because everybody who wants their food grown in completely healthy ways, who wants to eat organically all over the planet, should get together to fight for that. Whether you include meat in your diet, uh, if it is organic, if it has lived a happy life, your plants mm -hmm. are as sentient as animals are. In fact, trees have 12 more senses at least than human beings. They, they see, <laughs> feel, touch. Don't walk by trees without saying hello. <laughs> you know, we all need to fight for a healthy food supply and not worry whether one person's body does better on a Mediterranean diet and the next one on a vegan diet. I'm a strong supporter of the Savory Institute because I know that Alan Savory has the only means for restoring man-made deserts, and that is mm -hmm. to put hoofed animals back on. And what do you do when they reproduce if the people there can live well on that meat as well as whatever veggies they're able to grow? Uh, the deserts can be reclaimed in this way. So let's be tolerant of each other's uh, bodies and what's good for them. There is no one size fits all diet. And let's be united in fighting for healthy food. Mm -hmm. And everything else like Qigong, Tai Chi, yoga, these are the things that will help strengthen your immune system. They'll reduce your fears, they'll move your Qi energy. So many ancient systems like yoga and Qigong and, and uh, uh, all the other related practices that every ancient culture thought up are ways of keeping your bodies healthy and in balance. And you can do this even under lockup, especially when you have more time. <laughs> and teach your kids to meditate. You know, let them do that schoolwork and then have them really think quietly about it uh, and, and report on, so what was your mind doing when you were being quiet or what, you know, whatever kind of meditation you think will work. Little kids enjoy that. You can make it very brief at first, just one minute and you shut your eyes and, you know, teach them now. Well, I just will put in a plug for this since you mentioned that. Uh, and by the way, everything you say is just absolutely music to my ears. But uh, I hope I'm my, not going overboard. <laughs> oh, I love it. No. And 
I have so many questions I would like to, to ask you, but what I was going to say is that um, my whole take on nature inspiration is that a meditation that connects us with nature within ourselves, within our bodies, within our, our surroundings is the kind of meditation that would be really useful right now. Because if we actually took that time to silence our minds and listen to nature, that maybe some of these solutions will make themselves more apparent to us. So that's the kind of meditation that, that I'm encouraging my listeners uh, to, yeah. to be engaged in. Yeah, and, you know, there's a, a wonderful animal communicator I just saw who yeah. decided she would try talking to viruses. Mm -hmm. And she got, we're here to rebalance your system all the time. That is the work we do. We are the great rebalancers. And we're well, not, we don't know what we're doing uh, we, we want to revise nature. We want to say this shall live and this shall die. Uh, that's playing God with nature is not a cool idea. <laughs> we're, we may be spirit having a human experience, but we're fully human when we're here. <laughs> and, and we're not, uh, we weren't meant to incarnate. We were meant to incarnate on a planet that's also part of nature and to be in harmony with it, not to decide we know better than it knows just because it's been around for four billion years. And <laughs> we, why would we think nature doesn't know what it's doing? <laughs> right. Well, you've laid so much wisdom on us. And so I just want to ask you right now if we can continue this conversation, because I have a million and one questions to ask, Elizabeth. So I hope sometime down the road, you will come back and join us on this podcast, because it has been an absolute delight. But before we depart for today, I would like to ask you one last question. It's like, would you have, I mean, you've laid so much wisdom, I don't know what more you can lay, but you have some parting words of wisdom for us that we can, that we can all take with us uh, at the end of this podcast. Well, there are, <laughs> there, there are two lines from Rumi that I love. One is, there are a thousand ways to kneel and kiss the earth, which I, I interpret as saying, do whatever makes your heart sing to make a better world. Maybe you love getting involved in voter registration, do it. Maybe you love writing poetry or music, do it. Dance, sing, garden, uh, whatever. All of us together will fill all the slots. And the other is, why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Even while you're unshut down, the door is wide open to talking with each other about what we want to take into our future and what we want to pacifically resist when we get outdoors again. <laughs> Dr. Elizabeth Satoris, it has been just a pleasure having you on this podcast uh, and an honor. I am an admirer and a fan. I don't mind being that, un that biased in saying that to and you are, by the way, the first guest in the history of this podcast, and that is no accident, I'll you know. <laughs> well, so, thank you uh, for allowing me to launch it and for allowing me to fountain forth with some <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, and we look forward to uh, seeing you again. Aloha. Aloha <laughs> to all of you out there. And that concludes this episode of Nature Am I. I want to apologize to listeners for the low definition of the interview, which was recorded over Zoom. I anticipate that some of the technical challenges we encountered will be resolved in future interviews. 
To learn more about some of the organizations and people cited by Dr. Saturis in our interview, please check out the program notes for this episode. Until the next time, stay well, stay tuned, and stay inspired. You have been listening to the Nature MI podcast. To learn more about what we're doing to bring humanity more into balance with nature, please visit us at naturemi.com. We also welcome your ideas and feedback. If you would like to be a guest on a future podcast, let us know about your nature-inspired solutions and strategies. Thanks for listening.